traditional way of starting a Dhamma talk. Kind of gets the mind in the right frame. That knowing that really it's all the Buddha and the Dhamma. And uh, anyway. And uh, you know, that's just one way of um, infusing your life and what you're doing um, with Dhamma. When I think about this idea of how do you bring Dhamma into all aspects of your life, it's kind of like there are various ways you can approach it. <clears throat> Tonight I thought I'd look at two kind of um, aspects of this. One. It's kind of like talking about like a day in the life of a noble disciple. You know, what does that look like? And you'll probably see aspects of your own day, your own practice in, uh, in this description. And then another, another way to look at it is, you know, what do you do um, in the exceptional times? So that, that day in the life of might be kind of the ordinary. Things. And then, what about the exceptions? So we'll look at both. So when I think about, okay, noble disciple, first of all, I would encourage you to think of yourself in that way, as I've mentioned before. And, you know, what are the, what's the first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning? Um... This is something that I've thought about often. It started when I was in ministry training many years ago. And the teacher there said, you know, what, what's your first thought? What do you, well, of course, it varies. Sometimes you're just shaking off a dream or, you know, immediately tuned into something going on in the body. Or maybe the mind is active right away on some something that's, coming up. But we might want to intentionally turn our attention to the Dhamma uh, at that moment of waking up. Um, <laughs> Ajahn Brahm says his, his waking up, he immediately says, good morning me. <laughs> <laughs> He's very good at trying to encourage all of us to be a good friend to ourselves. And this is an aspect of Dhamma, you know, that, that kindness right off the bat um, to the person who's most immediately present, that would be you. <laughs> and, then, um, and then it's setting the day on a good, 
on a good trajectory, I think. And of course, when you're in the monastery, whether you're a layperson or monastic, you're staying at the monastery, there's a devotional practice almost every time first thing. Um, so first thing, that at Amarvati, there was one novice nun who would just grab her bed sheet, wrap herself up, and go to the temple. <laughs> Um, when you're wearing white, it doesn't look much different. <laughs> um, and you know, just you know, for your for yourself at home, having a, a place where you meditate, a shrine if you want to, and having how many of you have a shrine at home? Yeah. And if you haven't tried that yet. Uh, Finding a, a, a spot in your house. It doesn't have to be a big area, but a place where you can put some pictures or objects or candles or incense or some, some things that kind of bring that, um, that mental state up of becoming quiet and turning towards what really inspires you. And then, of course, some kind of practice. So the morning might not be your favorite time, but maybe for some of us, I mean, really, it's useful to look at what time of day is good for your meditation. But it's also helpful to start with something. So how long you're there, what you do, is really something you can decide and, and, um, and, and use according to what helps. So one person uh, told me that she started repeating the five precepts every day in the morning. And it really had a huge impact on her life. And, you know, many of you might chant something or, and, or just sit, or it's not just, obviously, <laughs> sitting without any kind of specifically devotional practice. But see what helps your mind come to the Dhamma. And sometimes we don't want to. And there's a little passage uh, in the middle-length discourses in the midst of the shorter discourse on the mass of suffering. And um, the Buddha said that even though a noble disciple has clearly seen with proper wisdom that sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering and despair, and that the danger in them is still more, as long as they still do not, do not uh, experience rapture and pleasure that's apart from sensual pleasure, apart from unwholesome states, or something more peaceful than that, they still might be attracted to sensual pleasures. So, you know, we may not want to sit and meditate because we really haven't experienced so much of the benefit yet or the joy of it yet. And so doing what we can to set up the causes and conditions for that to happen, whether that's 
listening to talks about how to bring the mind to that kind of state where that beautiful, pleasant feeling is going to arise or just finding little instances of it and then seeing what you can do to encourage it, grow it. And the Buddha said this was true for him before he was awakened, that he was still attracted to sensual pleasures until he really uh, was able to develop his meditation to feel that kind of joy and pleasure in his meditation. So knowing and being able to discern the difference between the pleasant feeling or pleasure that comes from sensual experience and the pleasure that comes from spiritual experience is important. And then, of course, you know, as we move through our day, there's eating, making food, maybe cleaning up, and whatever else we do for work, mundane tasks. There's a practice in the Chinese Mahayana tradition. Actually, um, I don't know if any of you know who Reverend Hungshur is. He's uh, an American Buddhist monk in the Chinese tradition who uh, is part of the... Master Wa's uh, organization, students, and he used to get, or he still does, I think, every Saturday night give talks about a particular sutra, sutra that talks about um, the, the bodhisattva, for us we call the noble disciple, having um, some kind of like thought, of, you know, some kind of mental. Um, suggestion or thought about each thing that they do, like, oh, I'm brushing my teeth, and what would the Dhamma reflection be? Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna scrub away the defilements, or, um, you know, I'm gonna wash these dishes, and when I do, I'm going to, like, clean away any kind of uh, greed, or, you know, whatever, you know, like, you can tell that somebody, like, wrote this, and kind of made a reflection for the various basic things that you do. What do I want to bring to my mind? And in the Theravadan tradition, of course, we'd encourage, well, maybe some of that comes right out of the suttas. You know, like some, you know, this is how you should train statement of the Buddha, or this is, this is a way to orient the mind. And then, you know, he, the Buddha encouraged us to be mindful even when we're doing all kinds of things, using the bathroom, you know, like walking from here to there, and whatever kind of basic um, things, simple things we might be doing through our daily life. So we might find ways to do that, to encourage the mind and bring our mindfulness to the fore. One of the things that we do that the Buddha, that comes from the Buddha is to re reflect on the basic needs of life, the four requisites, the Buddha said. I really found it interesting when I was a lay person to discover this teaching of the Buddha because I was, uh, as, as you might know, I was a software engineer and I was living in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto and my life was kind of hectic in certain ways, and um, it's kind of a stressful line of work sometimes. And it's everything but simple. Um, and so I was really interested in 
like, how do you live a simple life? And this teaching, when I first started visiting the monastery where my son was a monk in Thailand, I found it really interesting. And we, we put it in your, your chanting packet. So how many of you are, <clears throat> are familiar with this chant on the four requisites? A couple. Okay, let me find the page. You'll probably find it before I will. It's toward the end. 35, page 35. We have it here in Pali and English. <coughs> so the four requisites. So this was this was the part that was intriguing to me. What do we need in life? What are the real basics? And the Buddha said, well, you need clothes <laughs> for warmth and for modesty, you know. Um, in the, in the case of the monastics, it's the robe. But, you know, people at the time of the Buddha basically wore the same thing. They all had, like, robes, really. Um, but, you know, now we look pretty different from all you. <laughs> uh, but back then, um, that was kind common. So this first paragraph here, wisely reflecting, I use the robe only to ward off cold, to ward off heat, to ward off the touch of flies, mosquitoes, wind, burning and creeping things, only for the sake of modesty. So if you think about how you relate to your clothes, you know, what else is involved? You know, I mean, there's fashion and there's all kinds of things, right, that you might be considering, but what if you really think of the basic necessity to some degree and, and recognize um, how simple you can make it. So as a lay person, uh, for a while, I just reduced my wardrobe to two dresses that were wide enough for I could sit with my legs like this in meditation and I could put t-shirts under them if I needed something warmer or cooler. And um, I didn't get rid of the rest of the clothes. Like if I wanted to go out and do something different, I, I allowed myself to wear what I wanted to wear. But day by day, I would just switch one outfit. And I thought, is, are people at work going to think I'm nuts? Probably. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> but it was just interesting to see like how little it mattered to me as long as it was clean and, you know, um, in good repair. And that's what the Buddha said we should do, is monastics too. Keep them clean and in good repair. If our robe gets a tear in it, we're supposed to mend it. How much time do we have? Three days. Three days, okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and, then, and then, of course, there's food. And food is a big deal for a lot of people, maybe all of us in one way or another, because we have to have it. And if you, there are so many different ways that it affects us. It's probably the most important medicine that goes into the body. And you've heard the reflection uh, as we've been doing it at the mealtime. Not for fun, not for pleasure, not for fattening, not for beautification. It's for the maintenance and nourishment of the body to keep it healthy. So each, the Buddha said, you know, like, you, you eat to to um, satisfy the hunger, but you try not to introduce new uncomfortable feelings. You want to 
So he, he really did want us to be comfortable and healthy. And so this is the, a good way to think about this basic need that we have. And then where we live. Well, when I was living in Palo Alto in the high-tech job, the place I was living was way beyond what's required. <laughs> and then all comes with it all kinds of trouble, right? You've got to clean it, you've got to repair it, you've got to you know, take care of it. And um, sometimes in some places you see these huge homes and like one or two people live there and you kind of feel like, man, that should be an orphanage or something, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, just thinking in terms of what do, what do I really need to be comfortable and well-supported. And, of course, if we're in a house, we, we have some good friends in Palo Alto who've lived in their house for a really long time, and they raised their kids there. And now, if they sell it, the taxes are going to kill them. <laughs> so they're just in this big house, you know, until something happens. Um, but that's just how it is, and that's okay, of course. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's what do we do with the mind? How much do we feel like uh, this is some kind of extension of my identity? So how do we use our lodgings? Again, the cold, the heat, the insects, um, creeping critters, and um, the danger of weather and living in seclusion, having the privacy to practice. And then the last one is medicines. Having the support for care for when the body is sick and, uh, and medicines. And of course, <clears throat> all of these are much more elaborate nowadays in our culture than they were at the time of the Buddha. But you want to try to handle painful feeling and um, take care of yourself and have the supports needed to be as free from disease as we can. Um, when the Buddha talked to the monastics about this, he said the baseline for your robes is to gather scraps of cloth from the trial ground. Back then, they wrapped the body in some cloth, and if that body doesn't need it anymore, you could take it and wash it and dye it and wear it. And he had the monks um, and nuns make their robes look this paddy field. I don't know if you can see it from where you are, but it's got these strips and, and squares, and it's it's a representation of the way rice fields look if you look out over the and that's because he you know it's kind of like it's an organization and you have your look and you're using scraps of cloth because cloth was was dear it was hard to find in those days not as readily available as it is now food he said you just walk with your arms full and you eat what someone was willing to put in there. Lodging, if you don't have a place to stay, you sleep under a tree, at the foot of a tree. And for medicinal requisites, how many of you know what the basic medicinal requisite is? Fermented cow's urine. <laughs> yeah. So 
that's that's a way of training monastics to not have very high expectations. <laughs> and if you need to, you can get along. Um, and that's wonderful because, you know, we don't charge anybody for anything we do. There's no, like, idea of making a living at this. This is about um, existing as comfortably as you can, as safely as you can, without any fuss. And as a layperson, it felt to me like, yeah, I can really simplify my life. We don't really need so much. And of course, it's good for the planet. And we can share a lot of things. We can, we can pass things on to others if they're not things that we love and use and um, really find helpful. So, just some thoughts, and this, this is all very practical, um, but the Buddha was very practical, and he really looked at every aspect of life. Like, we have rules about what you do when you defecate, urinate, do anything. <laughs> just about anything. Um, we have 311 rules, and he pretty much covers it all. And it's helpful. It's like this is how you infuse Dhamma in your life. You know, you, you do you do life carefully, um, supporting um, a kind of ease that helps you to practice. And this, you know, like as you're going through your day, um, the advice from this teacher I mentioned before, Ajahn Ganha in Thailand, we, we visit and find extremely helpful, uh, is to be happy and at ease. How can you be happy and at ease through your normal day? And he said, you know, really bring mindfulness. He says, sati, samadhi, and panya into every moment. That's mindfulness, and samadhi is, is, a, is the stillness of mind, the one-pointedness of, of mind. And, you know, you ask yourself, well, if I'm going around doing daily things, what does that look like? Samadhi in the present moment, not just when I'm sitting to meditate. And then um, panya, wisdom. And the wisdom there... You know, the Buddha defines wisdom in different ways, in different suttas, because, you know, applying wisdom means that you're solving the problem that's arising in a way that, that is really leading towards the benefit for you and for others, or both. We often talked about that. When, when you're... When you're mindful, you're present, your heart is oriented with kindness, um, and you're clear, then you can you know what's good for you, what's good for others, and what's good for both. And this is a beautiful way to live. When we're not keeping the five precepts, we don't know what's good for us, what's good for others, and what's good for both. We often are confused about that. But all of these um, aspects of the practice really help to support us to know that and to do it, to follow through. One of the things that um, 
many of you have heard me talk about before is another thing that Ajahn Gunha talks about that make everything you do a gift. Think of it as a gift. Whether you're cleaning the toilet or you're, you know, like making food, even for yourself, think of it as a gift. You're giving this body a gift to take care of it. Uh, if we're doing things for our household, our community, or we're working, instead of thinking about, you know, well, I do this because they pay me, think of it more like, I'm giving this as a gift. If we make everything that we do, if we think of everything that way, even like driving a car, you know, you're letting someone else come in front of you as a gift. You're being careful. It's a gift. You know, you're, you're considerate. Uh, it's a gift. And even when we think good thoughts, you know, like what we think about through the day, if, we, if we're wishing you know, well-being for people we know and, and even people we don't know. And, and you know, you're, you're checking out at the grocery store and you look at the person who's checking you out. You talk to them a little bit and it's a gift. And it's beautiful. Um, <laughs> I always found stopping at the toll booth. I used to drive to the other side of the bay for work and then every day I'd go through the toll booth and Back then, people were in the toll booths, and, you know, and that's got to be a tough job with all those fumes and all that kind of repetitive, man. And I thought, you know, take off the sunglasses, turn off the radio, and say hello. And it's nice. I mean, there's a, a change that happens in the heart when we pay attention and care. And we can do that. We can infuse our life with these kinds of attitudes and look at the simple things and see how we want to do them. So you go through your day, you know, reflect on the value and beauty of the food you eat, the, the way you're approaching it, you know, reflecting on... Um, you know, how grateful we are for all the things that we're given. You know, one of the things that we see in our culture these days is an attitude of, I did it by myself. Uh, sometimes you really see that in people who have made a lot of financial progress in life or something like that. They feel, they, they feel like it's um, self-made, they're self-made. But, you know, actually in our culture, nobody's self-made. We rely on so many layers of infrastructure all the time, you know, and we rely on what other people have given us all along the way in life. When, from our parents to our teachers to our friends to the people who pick up the garbage to, you know, and you can think, oh, well, we live in a transactional society where, you know, we pay the garbage people and therefore we have the right to whatever. That attitude is really corrosive. And if we recognize that there is so much that comes to us out of the generosity and kindness and being responsible, people being responsible, um, and, and being decent, that we, that we really can you know, reflect on these things and, and lift up our own hearts.
be happy with life. Yeah, it's a mess. <laughs> Samsara, it's a mess. <laughs> and um, I really, we both chuckled a little bit on one of the intake forms. Um, somebody wrote, um, let's see, I even wrote it down. Oh, yeah. You know that question where it said, describe any present circumstances that might make it difficult for you to meditate or whatever? It says, well, aside from war or global warming or rise in hate crimes and ongoing COVID, nothing special. <laughs> Thank you for that. You know who you are. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's a mess. And there's so much, um, you know, that we, that we would love to um, affect, move in a positive direction. And, and there are some things we can do, of course. And it starts really with how we care for our own mind, our own practice. That's really where we gain the, the empowerment. Like, like I was saying last night, you know, protecting our mind and empowering our mind. And this really, um, and, and this morning, the reflection on choices, these are the things that go into um, making our life beautiful, a really beautiful gift to others and to ourselves, and um, a kind of development that we can really appreciate <coughs> in our life. So one of the things that you might consider doing at the end of the day um, is to reflect on the good things you did that day and the, the keeping of precepts. Uh, in our culture, a lot of times people have trouble even thinking that they did anything good, even finding what, <laughs> what might have been considered a good thing, a wholesome thing, but actually there's so much and we just write it off like, well, that's just how a normal person should behave. But those normal things are really important to acknowledge. This helps us to do more. And it helps us to be happy and at ease with ourselves, kind and content. And, you know, I mean, yes, we want to think in terms of developing our meditation more and developing our moral virtue more, refining things. But if we, if we recognize the good, a lot of our fear and anxiety can drop away. If we keep recognizing the good in ourselves, there's more potential for development than if we keep beating ourselves up. And if you don't believe that, just try it. Try going through a day where you drop the critical negative thoughts, anything that is shaming you or blaming you, and instead focus on what you're avoiding that would be bad and what you're doing that is good. And when we, when we change our perspective like that, we can really see there's so much. You know, you can go through a whole day and really avoid killing anything on purpose. And you can acknowledge that at the end of the day. You know, today I did not intentionally harm any living beings. I, didn't, I did not intentionally kill any living beings. I did not intentionally take anything that wasn't intended for me. I didn't 
I didn't use sexual energy in a way that would be hurtful. I didn't lie. I mean, I love the way that Buddha talks about the precepts because it's very clear whether you could keep, or whether you've kept them or not. He said a lie is something where you know you're going to lie, you lie, and then you know you lied. <laughs> it's clear. <laughs> yeah, okay, maybe I exaggerated a little. I can, I can tune that up. But you don't come down hard on yourself. How many of you relate to what I'm saying? I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways I always wanted to be good. But, of course, I was unskillful in a lot of ways. And then there's this self-bludgeoning <laughs> goes on. And it's really good when that stops. Okay, so this is kind of normal, but um, when we think about all those things that are going on in the world that we'd like to turn into a good to a good direction or we think about the the exceptions you know the events of the day even if they're not so exceptional but those times when even after we may be practicing for a long time some some kind of feeling of jealousy arises or sexual desire or aversion or anxiety or ill will or whatever anger and, you know, as I talked a little bit before about these beautiful, like, images of how can I let that be something that I can observe without getting involved? You know, oh, interesting. What's that? Um, it's like my dear sister here is talking about being grumpy, and she's grumpy. I see this on a daily basis. Not the grumpiness. <laughs> but when she's grumpy, she will talk about how she feels, and then she'll laugh at it. And it's like, that's this distance, like, yeah, there's that feeling, but I don't have to take this so seriously. I don't have to be in it. I can just be with this feeling and know that this is not really that important. Feelings come through and they go by again. Am I fairly representing you? Sure. Sure. But it kind of is every day. <laughs> 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 you can tell we have a lot of fun. <laughs> um, because it's, it's really useful to be able to look at what we're experiencing and realize that this is what people experience all the time. This is not just me. That's one of the things the noble disciple thinks. It's not just happening to me. And, you know, what can I do when um, these feelings arise? So the Buddha gave some specific ideas about different things, of course. You know, ill will, cruelty, these things are, are um, you know, really um, addressed with loving-kindness and compassion, perhaps, or 
recognizing what might lie behind those feelings, what fear that might be there, or some old pattern. And then as we, as we kind of do a little excavating, um, we, can, we can get to a place where we, maybe we need to give our mind some added support to help it be at ease. And part of that reflection on the good that you do is some of that support. There's a beautiful sutta. Um, anybody who knows me has probably heard me talk about it. It's called effacement, which is actually kind of an interesting word. I had to look it up. <laughs> it's a rubbing away. It really means you're like erasing your defilements. And it's in the middle-length discourses. It's number eight. And it goes through 44 different things um, that the Buddha says, like, others will be cruel, but we're not going to be cruel here. That's how it starts. Or it's, I mean, that's how the list starts. And, uh, you know, cruelty, anger, jealousy, arrogance. I mean, it's a, it's a long list, you know, um, the keeping of you know, following the Noble Eightfold Path, the keeping of precepts. There's a lot of things in there. And the Buddha gives, like, this, this way to work with each of them. Like, how do you change that habit? Change that pattern? How do you, how do you find the way around it? He says, you go around it just like if there's, you're crossing a stream and there's, like, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a way across, but it's really dangerous and, and difficult. But instead of going that way, you, you go by a different way where it's an easy crossing where you can just walk through. And, you know, it's like, okay, what does he say about anger? He said the way that you, that you avoid the dangerous crossing of anger is by non-anger. <laughs> Sounds like what? <laughs> How do I do that? But if you think about what is what is non-anger, it's not some positive. You know, it's not like love. It's not like kindness. Even it's just the absence of anger. It's easier to get to in some ways. It's like what is it like if I set this anger aside, and I and I can bring myself to to non-anger and then proceed with the situation. And the more that we do that, he goes through this list five times, I think, in this sutta, because it's first like acknowledging that these things are things we don't want to do. And then it's like turning our attention to really having the intention to not do them. And then you're practicing the opposite. And then you're refining that and continuing to do it and finally that thing doesn't even come up in you anymore. It's like really the way to erase it, rub it away. And this is part of our daily practice of Dhamma. Dhamma really fits in everything we do, every mental state, every 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 situation. Um, and as we learn about the different tools that the Buddha gave and the different approaches and the different ways of looking at things, we are living in a way that's got mindfulness and calm, clear, clarity of samadhi and wisdom infused in everything, moment by moment.
And when we catch those moments where that's not our orientation, we learn how to turn it around again. And it works. And one of the things that uh, we've already heard some about, the Brahma Viharas, uh, is another big player in this. I don't know if you already said, but Aya's been saying that she heard that the, like Arahants are always abiding in one, of the, one or more of the Brahma Viharas. That makes sense to me. I don't know if it, and we don't know if we've ever seen that in the scripture, but it makes sense because these are the divine abidings. This is an elevated mental state. It is so beautiful and safe. There is in the suttas like the advantages of metta, and one of them is that. Um, well, it doesn't matter. But it's like you're safe when you're in that kind of mind state. And uh, today, I was, we were asked to talk about what's called the near enemy and the far enemy of these Brahma Viharas. I see some heads shaking, you know. Uh, there's a lovely little book called Broad View Boundless Heart, I think. You can find it, download it from the Abhayagiri website. It's just, I think, for the four talks, two by Ajahn Pasano and two by Ajahn Amaro. And I think maybe the first one, it's all about, you know, the Brahma Viharas from one angle or another. And, and um, Ajahn Pasano talks about this idea of the near enemy and the far enemy in that book. And if you look at, at metta, you know, what is, when you're talking about the far enemy, it's kind of the, the state that it overcomes. You know, like metta really overcomes aversion, irritation, anger, ill will. But then there's there's something that you can that's like closer to metta, but it's it's also toxic or dangerous, an enemy, the near enemy. So when metta goes a little bit off and is not really metta, it can be something like affection or um, really having some kind of an attachment. So, you know, these, these boundless states, these divine abidings, they don't have any, any greed involved. They don't have, it's not a, we have to be careful to keep the self out of it. And um, when the self comes into it, that's when it starts to go off its course. So when we feel upset because um, something's not going the way we want it to go, we're not engaged, we're not in the Brahma Vihara, we're off into a near enemy. And, and compassion is one where there's quite a bit of confusion sometimes. I, I hear people say things like, I, I can't um, engage in kind of helping in a certain way because I'm so affected when I feel compassion. I'm so sad. Um, and, and actually, that's the near enemy of compassion. Because compassion, and this is a divine state, this is a, a beautiful state. There's happiness there, even though 
you're seeing the suffering of someone and you very genuinely want that suffering to be relieved. It doesn't come with this kind of sadness and downpouring. It's actually uplifting. All of these Brahma-viharas are uplifting. So when we notice that we are suffering along with someone else, then we're, it's a little bit off, it's off track, and, and we have, it's really important to take care of ourselves, to look at what is, what is it that I want to have be different? How, what is it that's not healed inside myself that needs some attention and care so that I can let go and not have this attachment, this craving, this clinging? Um, this sorrow, this grief over what's happening. And, and the appreciative joy or mudita is joy, but it's not frivolous or um, sometimes like some kinds of merriment or a little looser mindfulness. Mudita is not like that. Mudita is much, it's beautifully pure and really delighting in the good in someone's life or in your own life. When you really feel joy for people with having good fortune, good fortune that is good for them. It's, if it's not good for them, it's not really good fortune. Maybe in the world they think it's good fortune, but not necessarily. Which I'm reminded of this sutta where um, the son of a very rich family becomes a monk. And then they try to entice him back to lay life with all this gold. And he says, you know, you would do yourself a favor if you load that up on a cart and drive it out to the Ganges and dump it in the middle of the river. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I'm sure they didn't get it. But, <laughs> but, you know, that kind of fortune may not be so good for you, but it might, you know, as long as you have the proper um, relationship with it. So mudita uh, is this delight in success. It's a delight in goodness. And it, it counteracts the, the far enemy is jealousy or envy. So it counteracts any kind of feeling like that. And its near enemy is this kind of like being a little bit giddy or um, not mindful. And then the, the upeka, the equanimity, again, there's here you're seeing the good and the bad. There's wisdom. This is a wisdom factor. In all these lists that the Buddha gives, you'll always find some wisdom factors. This is the wisdom factor in the Brahma-viharas. I mean, everything's got to have wisdom included, but this one particularly. And um, it's, it's really um, the near enemy, when you get a little bit off with Upeka, with, it becomes indifference. Like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. It doesn't matter. And that's not that's not equanimity. Equanimity is 
there's an even-mindedness that sees with wisdom what's, go- what's going on, what hap- what's happening. And there is a caring. Um, and that's why you see these Brahma-viharas coming in combination. You know, the metas there. Um, you can have equanimity and karuna, compassion and equanimity. And, you know, one might be more uh, prominent than the other at a time. But this is what helps us recognize where our attachments are. And the hardest one for many people is when you have a child who's involved in things that are really bad for them. It's very hard to not be leaning over there wanting to fix that, to help them in a way that probably won't work because we're leaning over there instead of, you know, like really um, knowing what's what we have permission to do. Okay, these can be very complicated situations. Sometimes they're Sometimes we do need to do things that are without the person's permission. Maybe there's a way to help. But leaving that aside, the leaning, the, the reaching over to try to affect someone else in a way that's not appropriate comes from our own attachment. And we have to be mindful and clear about that. The far enemy of equanimity is when we become judgmental about what others are doing, um, approving or disapproving, liking or disliking, condemning. Um, And this is something you can see in monastic life where people are keeping rules, and if the rules, if that becomes something where you're kind of like putting someone else down, even if they are doing something that's not good, uh, you've lost your equanimity. There's a selfing in there. So all these enemies, the enemy to these beautiful states has a selfing involved in it. See? Some kind of me and mine, my ideas, my, my relationship with this person, my superior whatever, you know, it's just, it's off. And then we, we look at that and we notice it and we take care of it. So when you imagine or you think, think over some of the things that occur in your life, maybe sometimes some things that you don't really know how to handle, then it's useful to look at, well, what would the Buddha do? Or I used to play the game. She talks about her games. I used to play the game. What would an arahant do? What would an arahant do? One time I had a certain situation and I asked Ajahn Pasano what an arahant would do. He said, well, it depends on the arahant. (laughs) (laughs) Which gives you some idea that there are some options. But I I was reflecting on a situation I heard about recently. You know, there has been so much increase in hate crime uh, lately, and uh, there's always been discrimination. Human beings just tend to find ways to try to place themselves above others, and 
And a lot of times it comes from not having experience with different things that are different. Um, but I'm going to tell you about this situation, and I was thinking, you know, what, what could we do as a practice? How can we be more attentive? How could I be more attentive? I feel like I have a lot to learn in this area. And to base it, to, to ground it completely in the Dhamma, the Buddha talks about all the different ways in which human beings discriminate that don't matter, that's just made up, that's just human beings putting labels on things. And he makes a long list of, like, it doesn't matter what color your skin is, it doesn't matter, you know, like, all these body parts, what's going on with your, your head, your hair, your teeth, your nose, your mouth, your eyes, everything, even down to your genitals, so your gender doesn't matter. Uh, sexual orientation doesn't matter. I mean, can you imagine he covered all this way back then? And he said, these are not, and, and like your pedigree, you know, like your, um, your family line, your birth, in that way, none of that is a basis, a true basis for discerning whether someone is noble. What matters is their virtue, you know, their wisdom, their generosity, those things that we actually have the choice to cultivate. So this, this situation I want to share with you is um, just someone being discriminated against and how, what would we do if we see this happening? In this particular instance, it's a a person who happens to be Asian, who's a highly respected, actually, justice of a Supreme Court in a state. And um, she was traveling to a different state for some business. And when coming back home, the plane was canceled, the flight was canceled. And so everybody, you know, is in line to try to get their flight changed. And when she comes to the counter, they ask her to step aside and stand in the back and help everyone else first. And I'm thinking, if I was in that line, would I have noticed? And I mean, she's the only Asian person in the place, right? But would I have noticed? Would I have been able to say, oh, excuse me, she was here before me. And I don't mind, I, I'll wait. And when this was brought to the attention of the people there, they said, oh, it was because we had other people's information up on the screen. It's like total baloney. <laughs> <laughs> but this kind of stuff happens all the time. People are discriminated against. A lot of it's subtle. Um, but some of it's not. Can we notice? Can, can we... Can we step in in a way that helps, um, brings, it, brings awareness? It, can we be an ally? Um, and you've probably heard stories like this, you know. People are checking out and you know everybody goes through, but 
someone who happens to be black is asked for their ID, what would you do? Can you do anything? Just think about it. I mean, this is another way that we live in the Dhamma. I mean, the Buddha gave this very clear teaching. It's like, don't discriminate against people on these bases. That's not, that's not right. And I feel like for myself, this is an area where I can make some real improvements. I really, um, I really want to learn more. And it helps a lot living with someone who's Asian. Asian. Do you mind if I make you an example again? <laughs> here. <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of subtle and not so subtle discounting. And it's like, when are we going to wake up and take care of each other? And um, yeah, just just some food for thought. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.